0: Do you get emotional whenever you hear, uh, uh, you know, I'm proud to be an American, and you see like kind of a montage of the flag and the eagles and all that stuff, and you get a little, it's, it's hard not to get a little choked up, isn't it? Proud to be an American. But do you think that, uh, that, that Chinese Christians should be proud to be Chinese? Or Cuban Christians should be proud to be Cuban? Saudi Christians, should they be proud to be Saudi? And One of the things we're going to be talking about this morning is what does it mean to be a citizen of a nation and a Christian? You know, what does it mean to, to pray the Lord's Prayer? You notice that second main part there. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. How are we praying? You know, I grew up in a, in a Baptist school, and we prayed, uh, we rarely prayed the Lord's Prayer, but you know what we said every morning? I pledge allegiance. And it wasn't to this. How do we make sense of this stuff? This is, these are challenging questions for Christians. They're questions that we really don't like to look at very often. Because they, it's really enmeshed for us. It's really challenging. And I'm not going to answer all the questions of how the church and the state should relate in a democratic society or in any society. But we're going to be thinking about this today. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean, Paul is trying to establish for the Galatians that they are Christ's. But he names in chapter 3, verse 28, some of the different uh, social order. We've talked about that the social order uh, binaries that are competing with Christ for our identity. These are things that are offering us, offering people in that culture and some similar ones today, offering us a sense of being right, a sense of being a part of a significant thing. And it's not Christ, and it's not his kingdom. We've been seeing how one thing that Paul keeps coming back to in Galatians is how Jesus changes everything, right? The uh, conflict entrepreneurs that he's interacting with here... Are basically saying, Jesus is great. They would want to sing all those songs we just sang, but they would say, but he doesn't change everything. And Paul's saying, no, you have no idea how great Jesus is. Jesus changes everything. And so we want to think about how does this passage in Galatians, how does these truths that Paul has been establishing, how does it apply to us today? And what are the social order groupings and categories that are offering us alternative identities? alternative sources of righteousness and meaning and significance today. So just to review, our our identity, and I love the way that Lynn put it, our identity is that we are beloved. Our our identity is that we are Christ's. Our identity is defined by Jesus and uh, the nature of our relationship with Him. That's just sort of a, a way to talk about the Gospel. Who Jesus is and what He accomplished and what that means for us now defines us. And what that means is that we're in a covenant relationship with Jesus. A covenant relationship. You, you are in a covenant relationship with a spouse. You remember what you said? Forsaking all others. Forsaking all others, I will be yours and yours alone. Forsaking all others, we are called to be his and his alone. And we are his. We are Christ's. And he is ours. And we belong to him. We exist for him. And who is he? He is a king. He's a king. You remember kings? Not too many kings anymore. Your kingdom come because you are the king. And as king, He deserves our allegiance. Any other allegiance that we attach ourselves to must be under Him and ordered by His commands or else they become idols. They become something that we are allegiant to in his place. Now Paul names Jew and Greek because he had experienced in numerous occasions the way that those become and became idolatrous national allegiances. Idolatrous national allegiances, which is sort of what we mean by nationalism. We're going to be talking about nationalism today. This was a a big problem throughout the Bible. It's a big problem in every country and every nation, uh, especially countries that are doing great and especially countries that are doing really badly. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the background tension for the entire New Testament and especially the book of Galatians. Let me just describe to you a couple scenes so you can kind of see how nationalism is really the, the background for Jesus' ministry, the, the apostles' work, um, you can see nationalism. Like nobody comes out and says, "Like I'm a nationalist." But what they do is they gather around certain uh, certain themes. And if you touch those themes, if you touch those symbols, if you touch those ideas, they get really passionate. And for the New Testament, for the for the first century Jewish people, that was the idea of the temple. The temple really was their symbol. That sort of the the idea, the thing. That their national identity was bound in, and then the idea of Gentiles having contact with with the worship of their God somehow in the temple. If you look throughout the New Testament, I'm just going to do a brief survey of this. Every time that there's people totally freaking out and about to kill one of our guys, uh, it's because they touched on that subject. So, one of the first things that, uh, one of the first times Jesus is almost killed, in uh, Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth and he, he stands up and he says, he reads from Isaiah and he says, uh, This is the day of the Lord's favor. And he says, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everybody's like, Oh, this is neat. And then some people are like, Well, yeah, but we know this guy. Like, what is he doing talking about this? Hey, you know, if he's so great, he should do all that, that fancy stuff he did down in Jerusalem. He should do some of those miracles here for us. He should be fixing all our problems if he's so great. And so Jesus says, Hey, you remember those stories in the Old Testament where uh, Elijah and Elisha went to. Uh, He said there's there's a a lot of widows in Israel in those days, but they went to a Gentile widow. And there was a lot of lepers in Israel in those days, but they went to a Gentile leper. He's just like referencing Bible stories, and the people rise up to stone him. They totally, they're going to kill him because he reminded them of some Old Testament Bible stories, their Bible, that they really didn't want to hear. Jesus comes in in, uh, John 2 and, and Matthew 21 has this story. Jesus comes into the temple, you remember this, and he cleanses the temple. Because in the place where there should have been space for Gentiles to worship Yahweh together with Israel, what were they doing? They were selling livestock for sacrifices. They were exchanging money for the temple denarii. And Jesus says, he cleanses it, he says, this was supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. Well, that was not too long before they killed Jesus. And in his trial, in Matthew 26, they, they really couldn't find anybody to, to stick an accusation on him. The only thing that they could say against him was, this man said that I will destroy this temple and in three days raise it up, which is a reference back to what he was doing when he cleansed the temple. That same thing, they, they stand before Jesus when He's on the cross and they say, you who are going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, how you doing? That was the critical accusation in their mind for why Jesus needed to die. In fact, in, in John's telling of the passion story, the Pharisees and the leaders of the Sadducees, they get together and they say, if we don't deal with Jesus, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take our place, the temple, and our nation. The temple and their national power were so closely aligned, and Jesus had to die for that, to protect that. When we turn the page into the book of Acts, of course, the first martyr, Stephen, why did he die? Why was he stoned to death? According to the Jewish leaders, it was because he was speaking against our holy place. And what's really wild with Stephen is, he doesn't say like, no, 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 you're misunderstanding me. He actually goes on this really long explanation at the end of it, which is like, yeah, you guys care too much about this holy place and you need to worry about Jesus. And so they freak out and they kill him. Paul had a couple close shaves also with the Jewish people and probably the most intense one comes at the end of the book of Acts, Acts twenty-one, twenty-two. Paul is back in Jerusalem with money that he's collected from all the Gentile churches in order to bless the Jerusalem church. But some of, the, some of the Jews that don't like Paul are back in Jerusalem with him. And they notice him going in and out of the temple. And they say, like, now's our chance. And so while Paul's in the temple one day, they shout, this is the man who's everywhere preaching against the law and Moses and our nation and this holy place. And we saw him bring Gentiles in here. And it says everybody loses their stuff. They grab Jesus. They carry him out of the temple, slam the doors shut, and they're about to rip him to pieces. And the Romans come in and save him. Paul gets one more chance to kind of defend himself in that scene, and of course he doesn't, he just adds to it. He he sort of tells the story of the Old Testament, and then at the end of it he says, and Jesus, the Messiah, asked me to bring this message of good news to the Gentiles also. And again, everybody goes bananas throwing dirt, throwing stuff at Paul and the Romans who were carrying him away and, and saying exactly what they said when they crucified Jesus. They're saying, away with him, away with him. This is a big problem. And here's what I want you to discern through that little retelling of the story of the New Testament is that Jesus' life and his message and the apostles and their gospel was a direct threat to the nationalism of that day. Right? Nationalism was what prevented the Jewish people from receiving the gospel. It is a powerful enemy to what God wants to accomplish in this world and in our lives. And none of them would have said, this is nationalism. They would have said, this is religion. This is our identity. So let's talk about what nationalism is exactly. Nationalism is when our relationship to our nation and its concerns occupies part of that defining identity place in our life. When we say, who am I? What is it that makes me feel right and good about myself? What would you say there? I'm a part of the greatest nation. And this happens whenever people think that a country or policies or a party in the country enjoys a special, special relationship with the divine will, that we are the chosen and the blessed, and so we are authorized by the gods to carry out His will and to exact His wrath upon those who are in opposition to us. It's when we pray the Lord's Prayer... But in our hearts we swap out our for your. O oh God, hallowed be your name in all the earth. Help our kingdom to come so that your will may be done. This is just a common feature, again, of nations, right? Uh, the Chinese have for thousands of years referred to themselves as the middle kingdom, right? They're the kingdom, the place between the gods and the rest of humanity, They're the ones who are going to dispense God's will and God's wrath on earth for the gods. Mother Russia, right? Russia is is demanding, it's asking that all of the citizens of Russia take their identity from their relationship with this special people. And how many of our presidents, how many of our leaders, when they're referring to America, they talk about it as a city on a hill. Is that what Jesus was referring to 2,000 years ago in Matthew 5 when he said you were to be a city on a hill? Right? But, but there's this idea that we're this, this place, we're this middle kingdom, we're this special people. They talk these days about Christian nationalism, but that's just a flavor of nationalism because nationalism is when you make national interests religious. That's, that's what it is. And of course there's going to be a Christian version of that. It's an idolatry though. And of course uh, it can be an idolatry even if we use bible verses and christian words for it. Nationalism was a consistent temptation for the people of Israel throughout the bible because it offers an alternate source of identity that is more immediately rewarding. You remember that story in uh, back in 1 Samuel way back in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 8 where the elders of Israel come to Samuel the prophet of God and they say we we want a king like all the other nations. Because we want to be led into battle by a king. We're tired of being led into battle by priests carrying a weird-looking box. We We want a king on a big white horse, waving a sword in the air. We want something more immediately rewarding and satisfying. We want to identify ourselves as being like the other nations. And we see throughout the Bible repeatedly that nationalism grows stronger when Israel's true identity weakens. They were called to be a blessing to all nations. They were called to be the light of the world. They were called to, to, to spread the knowledge of the glory of God. And as their faith in God and their faithfulness weakens, then what do they turn to? They trust themselves. They trust their horses and chariots. They, they trust their ability. And they become like the other people. Because nationalism replaces our commitment to God. It replaces our faith and our faithfulness. You know, we're in a we're in a kind of a fragile condition in our culture these last couple generations. More and more, in fact, even more recently, people talk about us being in a in a gray space where things that used to provide people with identity have eroded. Our our family connections, the home, the church or things are shifting. How How we used to get secure job security, security in our work and and where we lived, and now things are the job markets changing, we're we're moving around, our values are changing, and so we all feel pulled into and we're being herded in towards group identities that are more easily are clearer and more easily rewarding. The world is giving us ways. To uh, feel right about ourselves, that are easy and satisfying. Just, just watch these particular programs, and, and then you're doing it right because you're watching the right news sources. Vote this way, hey, you're doing it right. Put these signs in your lawn, right? Uh, lawn sign versus loving your challenging neighbor. Which, which one do you want to do? Right? This is so easy, and it, it immediately makes you feel like I'm doing it right. These are easy gestures of identification with. The gestures of identity. We see this nationalism in the enthusiasms of the right and the left in the American political spectrum, on the Democrat side and the Republican. Because, and you can tell this because both sides feel uniquely righteous. Right? Uniquely, morally, ethically in the right. We are the ones bringing the, the, the will of the gods, Right? The, the gods of science, the gods of reason, the gods of the old Christian faith, the gods of tradition, we're bringing these, these righteous deeds and, and, and these gods' will into being, and we will execute their wrath against those who op- oppose us. And both sides of the American political spectrum are competing with competing with Jesus Christ as the primary meaning-giving identity for Christians. You know, one of the things that has really afflicted and struck and, and surprised the church these last three years, uh, all, so many different pastors and church leaders are, are leaving or quitting or are continuing on dispirited because they were completely unprepared for, completely shocked by the realization of how much greater many Christians' allegiance to the Republican or Democrat party was than their allegiance to Christ. Or how completely people identified their party's policies and platform as Christ's. Your name be hallowed, our kingdom come, so that your will may be done. We come back to Galatians. We come back to the message of the Bible, which is again that Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Wherever we started from in our political journey, Republican or Democrat, Jesus has got to change it. So how should we be in America? I, I, I don't, I'm not going to tell you all the answers to that. That is a long. There's a a long book there and many books and many, many talks. But I want to just point out a few things here that I hope will bother you if you need to be bothered or comfort you if you need to be comforted. Jesus changes everything, and Jesus is a king. He's our king. And we are citizens, therefore, of his kingdom. Paul says exactly this to the people of Philippi. Philippi was extremely proud of their standing in the Roman Empire. They were a place that uh, had been destroyed by battle. And Caesar relaunched it. with, a, with uh, He gave all the retiring military personnel places in Philippi and special status. So citizenship in the Roman Empire and being in Philippi were extremely important. And Paul says to those Christians, your citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your citizenship is not in Rome And we're not worried about Caesar bringing salvation to us. We're waiting for our Savior, our Lord, Jesus the King. Do Americans like kings? We do not like kings, right? What do we want to do? And barely. We want to elect our leaders. What does that mean? Elects a fancy word for what? We pick them. We want to pick them. Friends, Tough beans. (laughs) Jesus is king. What does that mean about Jesus? If you're king, what do you get to do? Whatever you want. Jesus makes the rules. We are the people that belong to Jesus. Your kingdom come. What's that talking about? That's talking about us. When Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation once you were not a people now you're God's people kingdom people these are the ways that the first century world referred to nation states nation state is a phenomenon that really doesn't come into being until the 15 1600s they called them a people they called them a nation listen to the uh, the people who are <clears throat> trying to arrest the apostles listen to what how they the The charges they bring against Paul and his apostolic band in uh, Acts 17. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. We always love that verse, don't we? Turn the world upside down for Jesus. And what are they being accused of, though? They're just so doggone nice. No, he says, no. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're saying that there's another king. And the apostles' defense was not, no, 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 you don't understand. I mean he's, he's kind of like a king. He's like a king in our hearts. The apostles got into trouble because they claimed that all authority in heaven and on earth belonged to Jesus. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Jesus' kingdom is the political entity to which we owe allegiance. What do you call it when people who owe their allegiance to one country uh, give their allegiance to another country? So the political battles of America are not the things that we're going to be passionate about. We're going to be passionate about the policies and plans and programs of our king. That's what we're going to be passionate about. That's what we're going to get excited about. That's what we're going to get angry about. Pastor, you mean prayer? (laughs) You mean love? You mean evangelism and discipleship and church? Ah, Weak. Unrealistic. Wake up. As we've already said, it is easier and more satisfying to engage in political action. Right? The culture is going to praise you for your participation. You voted, right? and your political party and your, your tribe is going to applause your service for the cause. You will be made to feel like you are doing good, and you will, how will you feel? You will feel righteous. In Christ's way, friends, Christ's way has always been mocked. There's never been a minute since he opened his mouth where it made any kind of sense to most people. Christ's way is always going to be mocked. It's always been unrealistic. But it's going to seem more ridiculous the more time we spend watching and listening to the, the arguments and the advocacy of the political talking heads and the news media. And the less that we give our attention, to our, we fix our eyes on Jesus instead of the TV and we let His Word dwell in us richly. You know, both Christ and the news media are saying different things are really important. Both Christ and the news media are saying, here's a problem, here's a solution. They're both saying it. They're both saying, here's the enemy. They're both saying, love this, hate this. They're both saying the same thing but about very different subjects. <clears throat> our identity is defined by Jesus and our relationship with him. So how should our relationship with the world then be characterized? I think that our, our relationship with the world should be characterized by a fear and a love. A fear and a love. I, I can... Point to these in Galatians, but it's really well said and simply said by James in James chapter 1, verse 27. Here is the fear and the love that our relationship with the world should be characterized by. Religion that is pure and undefiled, he says, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I think because we belong to Jesus, we should fear being stained by the world. We should fear to allow the loves and fears and hatreds and joys of the world and the world system to become ours. I want their fears to be my fears. Their loves to be my loves. And of course, our world system, the one that we live in, is America. America. So we should interact with their fears, their loves, their their politics with a kind of a reluctance and a humility. You know, the Bible says in many places, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Friends, think about this with me for just a moment, that the issues that we care so much about, who is telling us to care so much about them? Who is telling us to care so much about them? For the most part, it's those who are getting rich off our attention or, or who are getting power from our attention. And I want to encourage you to be careful with your attention. The writer Oliver, eh, Oliver Berkman, in uh, his book 4,000 Weeks, which is how many weeks we get on average in a life, he says, attention is just life. At the end of your life, looking back, whatever compelled your attention from moment to moment is simply what your life will have been. Jesus wants our life. Jesus wants our attention. Because Jesus wants us to be His. Fear being stained by the world. And and James 1.27 says, uh, care for the widows and orphans in their distress so I'm sort of extrapolating to this principle to love your real neighbors love your real neighbors which means that we don't love them first through policies we love them through relationships you know we may feel strongly about certain political topics but I think the bigger question is how do we feel about the people who oppose our view on that subject how do we feel about them Jesus and his beautiful new creation community remember is to be defined by love through the boundaries of the social order. Love across those boundaries and those gaps. Whether it's Jew, Greek, whether it's whatever your idea of your opponents is. We're to love them. We're to love across those barriers and those gaps. And of course it is very hard to love someone when we care so deeply about a value that puts us at odds with them. Which again is why we need Christ to reorder our loves and our caring. I say love our real neighbors let me uh, <clears throat> let me encourage you to watch out for this little trick. This is something that i 've noticed in my life a lot, uh, and I want to draw your attention to it. You know you begin to listen to a political debate, you begin to listen to uh, the talking heads kind of go back and forth, and they they encourage you to pay very close attention to issues that they insist are massively important, and so it's easy to buy into that right so we do we listen we care and we form our opinion and we have a good opinion we begin to argue for it and how do you feel when how do you then feel about yourselves when you do that when you get into the debate and you form a solid opinion and then you start to share with people you feel really good but have we done any good have we done any good I have found this sleight of hand to be at work in, in my life many times where I feel like because I, I got really enmeshed in a debate and I formed an opinion in myself, I feel like I did something important. But no one's actually been blessed by me. My sense of righteousness is now derived from my participation in the tribal disputes of a kingdom that's not mine, my identity needs to be from Jesus. Now, let me give you a very practical encouragement. This is probably the part of the sermon you'll like the least, but you know, when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth, he says he he modified his typical strategy because he, he saw in the Corinthian culture a culture in uh, in turmoil. And everywhere he looked, people were tribing up. People were working the social order, trying to get ahead. And that had infected the church. If you know the Corinthian story, you know that they were dealing with all sorts of issues, opinions, and alliances forming in the church. And so Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, So when I came to you, I decided to know nothing, Read that, those words again. I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And if that sounds dumb, look at what he says next. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. That wasn't easy for him. Paul saying, I had to act when I came to you and your culture like the only thing I knew was the Gospel because you have so hugely... a misplaced sense of proportion and priority. It's not even just that you're missing the forest for the trees, you're missing the mountains for pebbles besides a stream. Friends, I wonder if maybe the most courageous, the most important political act a Christian can do today is to stand apart from the passions and the frenzy of the world and to honor Christ Jesus as Lord and to know nothing but Him. To uh, to replace him, to put him again at the center of our identity, as Jesus commands us to be His, to be His, His loved ones, His beloved ones, His bought and paid for. <laughs> and so, to be His is to stand apart. It's to show honor and allegiance to, to identify with, to advocate for, to invest in His purposes, His programs, His plans to be His and His alone, forsaking all others, to be Christ's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and uh, we thank You that You say in it to us so often that You are our salvation. And Lord in many ways we look to other things for salvation. In many ways we we doubt your salvation and so we want to add sources of strength in our lives to the claims that you make in scripture. And there are so many, there are so many options where our heart can go to find a false comfort, a false peace, a false security, a false strength, a false joy. And we know this about ourselves, and you explain this to us in your word. And so, Lord, we just ask your help this morning. Draw us back to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us hear again and again, I am your salvation. And Lord Jesus, help us to hear that and to know that you are our salvation, and help us to be then the people, the saved people, the people that belong to you, and heralds of your salvation as this world seems to be getting, as our culture seems to be getting more and more partisan and crazier and more frenetic and impassioned, steady us, steady us on the rock that is Christ. Bring us together around Him. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to honor Your name. So that it may be hallowed in all the earth. And so that your kingdom may come. And so that truly your will may be done. In Jesus' name, amen.